Let's remain standing as we pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And it'd be very helpful if you have one of the handouts in front of you. If you didn't manage to get one on the door, do you want to just raise your hand and then the stewards will uh, uh, come and pass one, pass one to you. There's, there's some extra material on there that I uh, won't, be, uh, uh, won't be saying, but there's just some more useful quotes and so on that I've found helpful in my preparation that I want you to see the, uh, the fullness of. So uh, do keep your hand raised if, if you want one of those to help. Okay, we're about there. Frodo hid the ring away, and the shadow passed, leaving hardly a shred of memory. The light and music of Rivendell was about him again. Bilbo smiled and laughed happily. Every item of news from the Shire that Frodo could tell, aided and corrected now and again by Sam, was of the greatest interest to him, from the felling of the least tree to the pranks of the smallest child in Hobbiton. They were so deep in the doings of the four farthings that they did not notice the arrival of a man clad in a dark green cloth. Does anybody know what book I'm reading from? Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, well done, very good. However, I have very little sense of what I've just read, of, of what it means. I've heard of one or two of the, of the characters, but I have never read the whole book or the whole series, or even really a significant part of it. So turning randomly to a page in the middle of the story leaves me in both a position of confusion and intrigue. I have no idea whether the section that I have just read is significant or not. I don't know the implications of what I've just read. You see, to understand the real significance of any one page of any story, we need to understand the whole story. To understand the middle or any part of it, we need to know the beginning and the end of the story. At the heart of the universe is a love story. It's the story of God's love for his people expressed in Christ's sacrificial and sufficient love for his bride, the church. Yet when we turn to... A particular page in the Bible that refers to sexuality or identity or marriage in some way, we can sometimes feel a bit like the, the experience that I've just had in reading randomly from The Lord of the Rings. Confusion, intrigue, or a host of other emotions or responses. The love story in the Bible tells us not only of God's love for his people, but also the purposes and the patterns of all our different human relationships. The Bible tells us of God's best for those relationships and the boundaries that God gives to those relationships. 
And as such, we can know what God blesses and what he does not. Throughout this series, we'll be learning about the story of God's love for his people and how that shapes the stories of our other relationships. We'll be listening to the Bible story about husbands and wives, about singleness, about same-sex relationships, about our friendships, about our sibling relationships as brothers and sisters in God's new family, the church. And we can, we can dip into the Bible and look at verses here and there and, and get useful teaching on all of these things. But they are part of one bigger story. So firstly, we need to ask, what is the whole story? Where does this story of greater love start? It starts in Genesis chapter 1. So if you'd like to turn back to Genesis chapter 1, which it's on page 3. I don't understand why it's not page 1. I think Genesis 1 should be page 1. But anyway, it's page 3 of the church Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We are probably so familiar with those opening words of the Bible that we're dulled from the explosive impact that those words have to us in our culture today as they did in ancient cultures. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And that is a very distinctive start to a story. Why? Because it doesn't begin with us. So many of the alternative stories begin and end with us. I am who I say I am is the beginning and the end of so many contemporary stories. Self-expression, being true to yourself, is the ultimate God. And what's the word that's so often used? Authentic. Well, we need to see that only in the Bible story do we truly find authentically who we are. And that if we build our lives on that foundation, that it is good. And the goodness of it begins by that story not beginning with us, but with our creator God. And so do you start to see already that we're seeing the need to ask, to ask where other stories of sexuality and identity and marriage start? Because there have been and there are and there will be many other stories across the millennia, across different cultures. And the Bible story stands in stark contrast to them all in one way or another. Let's compare the Bible story with postmodern Western stories. Who's doing the creating? Well, in the Bible story, we see right from the start that it's God. There's a givenness, a reality, a discovering who we are. Our vocation serves a greater purpose, and we're what theologians would call para-creators. We're not the creator. But in the story that's becoming more dominant in our culture today, who's doing the creating? Well, it's not God, but ourselves. There's a fluidity rather than a givenness. There's a form of fiction rather than reality. 
And we think we design who we are rather than discover who we've been made. And our lives, we think, consist of of choices to be catered for and entertained rather than vocations to fulfill. Tragically, we have rewritten the start of the story to read, in the beginning, I. And we've fallen for a story of individual fulfillment rather than God's grand purposes in Christ. And that has even seeped into the church over over a century or two, but especially in recent decades. And not only have we rewritten or tried to rewrite the beginning of the story, we've forgotten and we've neglected the end of the story. Now, I wonder, are you the kind of person who likes to read the last page or the last chapter of a book first before you read the, before you read the whole book? Put your hand up if you're one of those people who would like to read the last page or the last chapter first. There's just, a, okay, a few more, a few, a handful there. Well done, okay. Well, actually, every one of us need to do, need to do that with the Bible. To understand the beginning and the middle, we need to know the end. To know how to live in the middle of the story of greater love. We have to know the beginning of the story. But more than that, we have to know the end of the story. And I mean end, not just as in the finish, but end as in the purpose, the aim, the, the completion, the fulfillment. Those are twin horizons that we have to keep our eyes on. In order that we can make sense of the middle of the story, so that we can navigate in the middle of the story, knowing the beginning, knowing the end. So let's see how the Bible ends. So I'd like you to take a copy of the Bible, if you have one with you, and turn to page 1247. It's Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 6 and 9. We've read from the beginning, now we're going to read from the end. Revelation chapter 19 beginning at verse six, because we'll find that the Bible ends with the marriage of Christ to his people, the bridegroom to the bride, Christ to the church. Then I, uh, verse six, Revelation 19, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah for the Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he, ha- and he added, these are the true words of God. Elsewhere in scripture, we find that this marriage means that those of us who are married now will not be married to our spouses in the new creation. As the church will be united with Christ, and as such, earthly marriage will have served its purpose. It's no longer needed. We won't be married to our earthly spouse, but we will be eternally brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus indicates this in Matthew chapter 22, which I think is on the handout. 
Jesus, re replying to a question where people are trying to trick him, says, you are, uh, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, that means he means at the end of the, the, the time, end of, end of this age. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, don't worry if this is all getting a bit confusing to you and this is all, all new and so on, that's, that's fine. We'll be coming back to this in future weeks. For now, for today, the main point that I want to get across is that to know how to live in the middle of the story, we have to know the beginning and the end of the story of greater love. And those are twin horizons that we have to keep our eyes on, the beginning and the end, to know how to live in the middle. So what is the whole story? And then secondly, we're asking, what is the purpose? Sam Albury, in his excellent book, uh, Seven Myths About Singleness, it's available on the bookstore, he writes this. My friend has an interesting spoon. It's, it's a spoon that I imagine is a bit like this one that I'm holding or the one on the screen. It's slightly larger than a teaspoon and has a large hole in the middle making it incapable of holding, let alone carrying, the, the sort of substance that, that typically requires a spoon. My friend has no idea where it came from. And so for entertainment, he keeps it in his sugar bowl, waiting for unsuspecting guests to attempt some productive engagement with it. Some will quietly, but unsuccessfully persevere with it, not wanting to make a fuss, and just assuming that the fault must somehow be theirs. Others will immediately point out how, well, the spoon is ridiculous, <laughs> and insist on something better suited to the task at hand. But the spoon, my friend, eventually discovered, was in fact an olive spoon. It was meant to be like that. The hole in the, or holes in the middle are to, are to drain the fluid as you lift the olive to your mouth. This is a life-changing sermon, isn't it, for you, you see? <laughs> hey, wow. Olive spoons. I'm expecting a flood of orders in Nottingham for olive spoons now. But the point is this. You can't make sense of the way the spoon is without understanding what it's for. It's true of my friend's olive spoon, writes Sam Albury, and it's true of our sexuality. We are sexual beings, and our, that's what I mean by our sexuality. It's meant to mean something. But unless we understand the purpose of our sexuality, we won't understand how it's meant to be used. The best we'll hope for is to try and, try and get some passing entertainment from it or from others. But understanding what our sexuality is for will help us to make sense of what the Bible teaches and what our bodies feel. And it will also give us something far more positive than, than merely a set of rules as we understand the reasons that God reserves sex for the lifelong union of a woman and a man, and of how that can be good news for those who are married, 
and for those who are not. But firstly, let's ask, what is the point of sexuality according, what is the purpose of sexuality according to our present culture? And in Western culture today, the answer is, in short, sharing pleasure. And we could also add in expressing identity and intimacy. And Andrew Wilson draws out the implications. And if you have a look on the handout, there's a quote at the bottom of the first page that carries on. He points out this. Frequently, cultural conversations about sexual ethics take place on the basis that everyone knows what sex is for, basically physical enjoyment and or emotional connection. And the only disagreement is over what limits you should put on it. Age, consent, the number and sex of your partners, and whether you are related to them, whether you are married to them, and so on. Sex, so the thinking goes, is just an enjoyable physical bonding experience between two consenting adults. The only question is whether you're going to be bigoted about who gets to do it with whom. Well, over these weeks, I want to show from the scriptures with God's help that Christians fundamentally think sexuality is about something much, much more than this. And I think this is why some of our conversations in society and even in churches seem to be talking past each other. Because the Christian view of the purpose of sexuality and identity and marriage linked in is much, much fuller than our culture's view. And I think that's to the point that we are almost talking about completely different things, even if we're using the same words. So what is the purpose of sexuality in the Bible? Well, it's nothing less than than pleasure and intimacy between husband and wife. The Bible's very clear on that, but it's much more too. Let's turn back in the Bibles to Genesis chapter one again. Uh, Still on page three, but Genesis chapter one. And in these chapters, we're given a front row view of God's spectacular creation of the cosmos. And the climax of all God's creative activity is the entrance of humanity. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Do you get that sense of something special happening here? Out of everything that he's made, humanity will uniquely bear God's image in his own creation. It will uniquely correspond to who God is, what he's like, and play a unique role in fulfilling God's purposes. And immediately highlighted in verse 27 is that God made human beings male and female. 
And throughout Genesis 1, if we'd have read all of that, we'd have seen various pairings introduced. Heaven and earth, light and dark, day and night, sea and land. And all of these pairings interact with and complement one another. And the relationship between this final pair, male and female, will provide a clue as to what will happen with the first pair, heaven and earth. And as Rupert earlier read Genesis 2, we saw how in that chapter, Adam is created, he's commissioned, he's shown to be inadequate on his own, and he's given a perfect counterpart in Eve. And they're brought together, and we find the first wedding in uh, Genesis 2, verse 22 onwards. Turn over, over the page in the Bibles to Genesis 2, verse 22. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Do you see the delight there? Expressed in a love song, but also in the marital union of husband and wife, a one flesh sexual union. The bodies of a man and woman fit together in life-giving closeness, a one flesh union. But it's more than that, too. If I can put it like this, marriage is not just inward-facing, but outward-facing to God's purposes in the world. The male and female pair need each other for the story to progress. They have equal and interdependent roles. They are both the same and distinct. And they are together as part of a bigger story. They're not just focused in on each other, but together are facing outwards. They're not made merely for themselves as individuals, but for each other and for more than that, for a bigger purpose, God's purposes for the life of the world. It would have been impossible for one man and one woman to fulfill God's commission to them just on their own. They needed children. They needed future generations. They needed to be fruitful and to increase in number to be able to fulfill that that commission to rule and steward creation. And one person has written how we really need to, to decenter our theology of relationships away from self-centeredness, or actually recenter our theology of relationships, away from self-centeredness and towards God and his people in his purposes in the world. Human beings are created as male and female as a living metaphor. Think about it, God God could have made humans capable of asexual reproduction, but he didn't. In the quote from Rebecca McLaughlin that, that I think is on the handout. Sex joins man and woman in intimate relationship as they become fruitful and multiply. The God who exists in utter intimacy with love across difference at the core of his being 
creates image bearers who are of the same essence, but different, and calls them into one flesh unity. And male and female bodies are designed for this, to enable procreation and one flesh union. But, but if these things are all that sexuality and marriage were created for, it does leave us with some questions. Such as, why do we have a sexuality? Why do we have sexuality before we're able to express it properly? Or what if we will never be able to express it properly? And doesn't being given, being given such powerful feelings and then be told or to experience that you, you can't express them or enjoy them, doesn't that seem cruel and unlivable? Well, I hope we'll be finding answers to those questions and many others throughout this series. But a significant part of the answer to such questions comes, as we, as we saw last week, how God expresses his love to us through the central metaphor of a husband's love for his wife. Ultimately, our capacity for sexual feelings and expression makes God more deeply knowable in the sense that it helps us grasp the full passion of God's love for us, his people, and gives us a reference point for the awfulness of our unfaithfulness to him. Rebecca McLaughlin again. God created sex and marriage so that marriage at its best might give us a taste of his passionate, sacrificial, unconditional love. So what happens at the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 and 2 gives us an insight into the purpose of sexuality and marriage in light of what God has planned for the universe. There's a pattern. There's a picture that we need to see. The union of the man and woman in marriage is going to point us to the eventual union of heaven and earth in Christ. It's foreshadowing the future. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. At the end of the Bible, as we've seen, as we've seen we have the marriage supper of the Lamb and his people, followed by a vision of heaven and earth finally united. As the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, like a bride dressed for her husband. Heaven and earth are at last united, and marriage is the language that's used to describe it. And therefore, as Sam Albury writes, this reminds us again of why the Bible repeatedly insists on the heterosexual character of marriage. For marriage to be a reflection of Christ and the church, it must be between like and unlike, male and female. Change this arrangement, and you end up distorting the spiritual reality to which it points. Alter marriage, and you end up distorting the gospel it is meant to portray. And we will see throughout this series how Marriage is a signpost 
to the sacrificial love of Christ. And singleness is a signpost to the sufficient love of Christ. And all of us need both of those signposts. What is the whole story? What's the purpose? And thirdly, more briefly, where is the path? When we come to the number of individual verses in the Bible that talk about sexuality and marriage and so on, those verses are like lamps that, that illuminate part of the path. They don't tell the whole story. They don't illuminate the, whole, the, the full picture. But they do light up part of the path that is consistent with the rest. So we don't just ignore them or write them off. They lead us from the beginning to the end of the story. In Matthew chapter 19, we read that Jesus says, in answer to a question about divorce, actually, he says, haven't you read, he, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus reaffirms God's creation of humans, male and female, and his one flesh designed for marriage. And it's high demands. And he does all that in the context of a question about divorce. And this is the same Jesus who, as we saw last week, routinely provoked scandal by those who, by associating with those who are known for their sexual immorality, who had wandered far from the path. And this is the same Jesus who calls us today. Whatever our own story, however far we have wandered from the path, it's the same Jesus who calls us today to turn to him for forgiveness and to find balm for our wounds. And maybe you are here today and you deeply sense that the way that you have used sexuality has, has caused wounds. Wounds to you and wounds to others. And yes, yes, it was sweet to begin with. You had a sugar boost for a while. But now, it seems to taste sour. and you've been de left disillusioned and feeling ashamed. Christ invites you to come to him. Louise Perry is uh, one of a growing number of people who, who are not Christians, but who are exposing and critiquing the norms of our culture 
and of contemporary cultural assumptions about sexuality. And in her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, she highlights that the main winners of the sexual revolution are a tiny minority of high-status men, and certainly not the women forced to accommodate the excesses of male lust. Well, the story of greater love in the Bible is a very different sexual revolution. A story in which we learn, well, firstly, in which we find forgiveness and the covering of our shame. But also a story in which, by God's power, we learn to steward our sexual desires rather than always satisfying our desires. It is the story in which we truly find the purpose of our sexuality. It's the story in which we find the safe space for sex. It's the story in which we find a whole arena for different kinds of intimate connection in friendships and in family. It's the story in which we can live in the middle of the story, in all of its mess, and I'm not naive about that, but it's the story which helps us navigate in the middle because we know the beginning and we know the end. So we can find forgiveness We can find balm for our wounds. And we can live with confidence, compassion, and courage. Because there is a happily ever after. It's not in earthly marriage, but it is in the new creation. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Lord, we praise you that you are the author of our story. 
and that that is good news for every one of us. Lord, thank you for showing us the, the end, the purpose, the fulfillment. Oh Lord, forgive us for misusing your gifts. Forgive us and bring balm to our wounds and the wounds we have caused others. Forgive us, Lord, for placing hopes and expectations on others that that only you can meet. So, Lord, open our eyes, lift our hearts, give us water that's from the spring of water of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.